Oh, Father, we are here today. We are so glad to be here. Father, we are your people. You are our God. And we want you to know how much we love you. We want to extol, worship, and honor your precious, holy, and matchless name. And we want to hear from you. So at this time, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that, Father, you would descend upon us. Holy Spirit, and fill, fill our hearts and, and dwell us, abide with us. Give us spiritual eyes and ears that we might see and hear the truth that you have for us today. Make us willing, as, as Aaron shared earlier, to open our hearts, to allow you to do the work that you need to do in each one of us. Father, may we hear from you, may we experience conviction from you, but may we also be encouraged by you. We love you so much. We're glad to be here. Father, be, be in control. Let me just be your, your servant this morning, your, your voice. Um, I don't want to get in the way of what you have planned for uh, this message, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before becoming a pastor, I worked for several years as an administrator of an optometry clinic, and one of my responsibilities in that capacity was to hire and fire. I liked hiring, didn't much care for the firing part. On one particular occasion, while hiring for an opening at our front desk, I interviewed an applicant whom I thought might just possibly be a good fit for the position. So after the interview... I asked if I could have her come back for a second interview, which would be for the direct supervisor if we were to hire this person. And as I was trying to find a time that would work out for everyone involved, this applicant came up with one excuse after another after another as to why she couldn't make this time or that time until she finally fessed up. She confessed to me that the only reason she came in to interview for this job was to satisfy the state's requirement for those who receive unemployment insurance benefits, that is, that they actively engage in a search for a new job. She had no intention whatsoever of going to work for me or anyone else for that matter. In addition to being relieved that I didn't end up hiring this person, I was really taken back to find that she was more interested in remaining unemployed so that she could receive the state's unemployment, unemployment insurance benefits, which were just a fraction of her previous earnings, than in being gainfully employed in a job that was significantly better than the one that she had. I thought she would jump at that opportunity, but she didn't. So I thanked her for her honesty and promptly showed her the way out. Well, today we're going to learn that my applicant's attitude is actually reflective of people in general, even of us as Christians, in that oftentimes we'd rather remain in sinful and sometimes even painful situations or states because it's what we know and what we're comfortable with than to submit ourselves to the healing power of God so as to get well because doing so just might put us in a place that is unknown to us and that is filled with new expectations and new responsibilities. So with that, I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to look at the first 15 verses. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up and someone will make sure that you have that. And you're welcome to keep it. 
John chapter 5, page 587, by the way, if you're using one of the Bibles that we give away. Everybody have it? All right. John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, John doesn't tell us which festival this is, which would indicate that he mentions it merely to give a reason why Jesus was in Jerusalem. And the reason that's important is because chapter 4 ends with Jesus being in Galilee. So John wants to get set the stage, give us perspective. Verse 2, by the sheep gate in Jerusalem, this is the gate to the city in its northeast corner where the sheep market was, thus the name sheep gate. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Verse 3, within these lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. I need to stop for just a minute and explain something. Some of you probably have already noticed, but if you're following along with the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is the translation I'm reading from, or with some others, such as the New American Standard Bible or the New King James Version, you'll notice that the rest of verse 3 and all of verse 4 appear between brackets. If you have the English Standard Bible, New International Version, or some others, you'll notice that there is no verse 3b or verse 4. You'll have to look in your footnotes or in the margins to find those verses. So go ahead and take a look. See where you find those verses in your Bible. The reason for this, you see it this way, is because these words recorded in verse 3b, the second half of verse 3 and verse 4, are not in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and appear to be a later insertion to explain why the pool water was stirred up, and we'll get to that in a second, all right? So starting over with the beginning of verse 3, within these lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now here comes the explanation, which by the way is based on local tradition, and I would push it a little further and say local superstition, waiting for the moving of the water, verse 4, because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water, although the water was most likely, at least in my opinion, stirred up by an intermittent bubbling of a natural spring and not by an angel. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. Okay, now we're done with the bracketed portion of the scripture. Let's look at verse 5. One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Verse 7, sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me into the pool. NIV here says I have no one to help me when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. By this he seems to be saying it's not that I lack the desire to be healed, but rather the means. And I don't buy it, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. Verse 8, Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your mat. All right, let me stop and explain this for a second, then we'll get back to the Scripture. 
It was the Jewish Pharisaic tradition and not the Old Testament law that forbade people from intentionally carrying anything, including this invalid carrying his mat, from a public place to a private place on the Sabbath in particular. This was just one of the many very rigid rules developed within the legalistic Jewish tradition surrounding the proper observance of the Sabbath. Rules that have carried over into modern form into contemporary Judaism. Let me just give you a couple of examples so that you can connect with this a little better. Here's one. If the hot water tap is accidentally left on, it cannot be turned off on the Sabbath. So if you turn on the hot water, you're out of luck. You're going to run out of hot water. You can't turn it off till the next day. Escaping gas, however, can be turned off, but not in the normal fashion. One must turn off the tap of a gas burner with the back of the hand or with the elbow. So go figure that one out. Here's another one. One cannot squeeze a lemon into a glass of iced tea, but one can squeeze lemon on a piece of fish. One more. One cannot bathe with a bar of soap on the Sabbath, but liquid detergent is acceptable. I'm not sure what the difference is. Now, I gave you those so that you could connect with it, and here's why I'm making such a big deal about this. Considering the inflexibility of these requirements, both the ancient requirements as well as the, the more modern requirements, you have to believe that Jesus purposely healed this man on the Sabbath in an attempt to show the Jews that they had become enslaved to their traditions about how to observe the Sabbath and had forgotten that God seeks mercy above duty. Now, it's kind of an aside, but I think it's germane to the story. So let's get back to the scripture. We're at verse 11, by the way, and as I read this, I want you to notice the healed man's, what I consider, surprising response to the Jew's statement regarding the legality of picking up his mat and carrying it. Verse 11, he, that's the invalid, replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Now, I find that really interesting, and here's why. This guy seems to have felt no particular gratitude to Jesus for his healing. He took no responsibility for the action on the Sabbath. He cast all the blame, if you will, on Jesus, in essence saying, I was just following orders. This is what he told me to do, so I did it. I believe that one who was truly grateful to have been healed would have responded with expressions of joy and gratitude rather than by blaming the healer for having him walk around with his mat on the Sabbath. I think that's very curious, and you'll hear more about this in a minute. Verse 12, who is this man who told you? Pick up your mat and walk. But the man who was cured did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Verse 14, after this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you, clearly implying that it was this man's sin that was responsible for his sickness. Last verse, verse 15. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Not only did this man not appear grateful to be healed, once he found out the guy's name who did the healing, he went to the Jews and threw him under the bus. I think that's a very peculiar way to thank the one who cured you of your 38-year illness. All right, so there's the passage. The question is, what's it all about? 
what can we learn from this passage of Scripture? Well, this is a passage of Scripture that teaches us, first of all, of Jesus' willingness and his desire to heal. But that's not all. It's a passage that also teaches us of our need to resign or submit our will to God's will in order to be healed. And that's where I'm going to camp with the rest of my time this morning. Let me explain what I'm talking about. Jesus asked this paralytic, this this man who had been an invalid for nearly four decades, if he wanted to get well. Now think about that for a minute. On the surface, it seems like kind of a silly question, doesn't it? Who wouldn't want to be healed of an illness or a disease, especially one who had been sick for so long? So it seems like a silly question, but I want you to consider something with me for just a moment. Perhaps this man had grown accustomed to his disability and would prefer the known pain of his infirmity to the terror of the unknown with its new expectations and its new responsibilities. Maybe being healed would have imposed a hardship of a different and unknown kind for this man. In that regard, a Bible commentator by the name of George Finley points out that an Eastern beggar, there we go, that an Eastern beggar often loses a good living by being cured of his disease. Maybe it was lucrative for this man to not be able to be the first one into the stirred waters, although there's no biblical basis that would indicate that the water would have done anything for him had he been the first one to the to the pool, but that's kind of beside the point. It's entirely possible that it was to this man's economic advantage to be pitied for his failed attempts to be the first one into the water. And in addition to that, perhaps this invalid was content in the sin that was responsible for his illness, which I believe is, at least in part, the conclusion that Jesus came to. I think that what prompted Jesus to ask the question, do you want to get well, was his spirit-filled knowledge of the sickly condition of this man's heart in the same way that his spirit-filled knowledge of the Samaritan woman's sordid marital past, this is chapter 4, verse 16, as well as her current situation, prompted him to tell her, you remember the story, Go call your husband and come back here knowing full well that she had had five husbands and that she was not married to the man she was with at the time. In other words, I don't think Jesus asked the paralytic the question this way. Sir, how would you like to be healed today? I don't think that was what was behind his question at all. I I think that he deeped purely... He peered deeply into the man's heart and discovered the darkness there. And then he asked the question this way. Do you really want to get healed? Do you really want to be well? That's not just my opinion. John provides a couple of clues in the passage that I think support this contention. First of all, there's the paralytic's lack of gratitude that we talked about from verse 11, as well as his betrayal of Jesus, verse 15. I think both are indications that this man was not particularly happy about being healed, which in turn was an indication of the sickness of his soul. 
And then there's Jesus' warning to this man to not sin anymore, verse 14. An indication, as I mentioned before, that this man's ailment was a direct result of his sin. I believe that Jesus perceived that not only was this man's body ill, his soul was ill as well, so Jesus kind of jabbed him a little. Do you really want to get well? Do you really want to be healed? And although I don't think for a second that the invalid was sincere when he told Jesus that it was his lack of means and not his desire that prevented his healing, Jesus, because he was more concerned about the man's soul than he was about his body, accepted his answer as a submission of his will or as his declaration that he desired to be healed. And so Jesus healed him physically. Physically. And I think Jesus healed the man's body so that he could have an open door to this man's soul. John tells us in verse 14 that Jesus found him in the temple, found this man in the temple complex and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Let me paraphrase that if I can. You've experienced healing and restoration of your body. Relinquish your life of sin, the sin that caused the sickness of your body, so that your body may stay well and so that you may experience a far greater healing. The healing and the restoration of your soul, because a soul left sick carries a far worse fate than does a body left sick. All right, there's the explanation to the passage. Now it's time for us to get personal. How about you? What would you say? Jesus found you and asked you the question, do you want to get well? And how about me? I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching the word of God to all of us. Do I want to get well? Now you might be thinking that that's a really silly question. If we had an illness or a malady of some sort, of course we want to get well. Who wouldn't? But let me ask the question as Jesus asked the paralytic, do we really want to get well? Do we really want God to heal us of our vices and our addictions and our misplaced passions? Let's call it what it is. Those sins that harm our relationship with God and stunt our spiritual growth. The lesson of this passage is that God is willing and he wants to heal us completely, but we have to want to be healed. God will not force himself upon us. He seeks the submission of our will to his own. When we do that, then he will heal us and he will make us whole. A Bible scholar by the name of William Barclay put it like this, and I quote, The first essential towards receiving the power of Jesus is the intense desire for it. Jesus comes to us and says, do you really want to be changed? In our inmost hearts, if in our inmost hearts we are well content to stay as we are, there can be no change for us. The desire for the better things must be surging in our hearts. End quote. Do we really? want to get well? Do we really want to be healed? Do we 
really want to do what it takes to be completely reconciled with God, to be in the kind of relationship with him where we submit absolutely everything in our lives to his sovereign authority, where we relinquish all of our self-centered pursuits in favor of his will? Do we really want that? Be careful how you answer this question because getting well spiritually, I mean really getting well spiritually, may involve radical change. It may bring new expectations and new responsibilities to your life and to my life. But on the flip side, remaining a spiritual invalid has dire consequences. Remember Jesus' words from verse 14. Take a look. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now we could have a theological discussion regarding what the something worse is, but I think doing so would really only distract us from the main point of the message, which is do we really want to get well? Will we lay our vices and our addictions down at the foot of the cross? Will we repent of those things? Will we seek God's forgiveness and his healing? Or let's be honest, would we rather hang on to those things? Maybe just one or two. Keep it close to our, close to our chest. If the answer is yes, I want to repent of my sin and seek God's forgiveness and healing, the natural follow-up question is this. What are those vices and addictions, those obsessions and pursuits and passions that we tend to be in bondage to. Again, let's call it what it is. What are those sins that grieve the Holy Spirit and stunt or damage our relationship with God? Is it maybe materialism? Do you just have to have more and more stuff all the time? Or maybe it's pride. Perhaps it's jealousy. Are you burning with envy because someone has what you want for yourself? Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's grudge holding. You have an unwillingness in your heart to forgive someone who has wronged you. Maybe it's substance abuse. Maybe it's spousal abuse. Maybe it's child abuse. Or maybe it's not that heinous. Maybe it's simply apathy. You could take or leave the things of God. Perhaps it's laziness, or maybe it's selfishness. Everything just has to be about you. Whatever your vice, whatever your addiction or unholy pursuit, the question is this, will you lay it down for the sake of a full relationship, a committed relationship with Jesus Christ? Will you ask God to heal you and to restore you in a complete, fulfilling relationship with him? It's a difficult question. I'm going to give you a chance right here, right now, to make that decision. I've asked Aaron if he would sing a song that would help us to reflect on these things, so I'm going to ask him to come on up and get himself ready. As Aaron sings the song, I want you to do two things, okay? First of all, I want you to ask God if there's anything standing between you and him. God is really, really good 
and answering that prayer. Is there anything standing between me and you? If he brings something to light for you, and perhaps you've already know what it is, but if he brings something to light for you, I want you to next decide whether or not you're going to lay it down at the foot of the cross, whether or not you're going to repent of it. And I want you, as you're processing through this, I want you to think of the promise that we read in 1 John 1, 9. That, that verse says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So conviction is important, yes. But within the context of encouragement, because as Christians, there is forgiveness for us. Now, this has nothing to do with our salvation. This is about sanctification. This is about living our lives, growing into the image of Jesus Christ. And we run into roadblocks from time to time. That verse was written for Christian people. And as we run into those those things, those sins that we hang on to, Satan tries to tell us you're no good, you might as well just keep doing that because you've blown it so many times in such a bad way, you can't possibly go to him. That is a lie. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. After Aaron's done singing, I'm going to close by leading us in a prayer of repentance. If it's your decision to get well, and this is between you and God, just going to ask you to simply agree with that prayer in the quietness of your heart. So, Aaron, sing for us. Precious blood of 
We're going to pray, but as before we do, I'm going to invite the worship team to come and join Aaron here. After we're done praying, we're going to sing together. Just want to remind you that forgiveness is available. Don't let Satan lie to you. Well, he's going to lie to you, but don't believe it. Don't believe the lie that Satan will inject into your life that you've, you've messed up too badly. This is the umpteenth time we've dealt with this. God's done with you. That is not true. God is never done with you. So confess if you need to, and then receive. Receive that forgiveness that's offered freely. So let's pray again. If you've identified something in your life that you need to put at the foot of the cross, you need to leave it there. Agree with this prayer in the quietness of your heart. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess to you this morning that I have been hanging on to this thing that you've so graciously brought to light for me. And doing so has stunted my spiritual growth It's created distance between me and you. I really do want to get well, Lord. So this morning, right here, right now, I lay it down at the foot of the cross in a spirit of repentance, and I ask you, dear God, for your forgiveness. Please heal me. Please refresh me, restore me, renew me. And please strengthen me that I would not return to the sin that keeps calling me. Help me to find the fullness of my joy, the fullness of my purpose in my relationship with you, and to stop looking for it in other places. You are my all. You are my everything. I want to be holy Because you are holy. Because there is joy in that holiness. There is joy and fulfillment in becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. God, I want to stand before you and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want anything to stand in the way of that, so take this thing. Take it, I give it to you, I repent of it. In Jesus' precious name I pray these things, amen.